Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. Uh, it's great to see everybody. This week, we, um, we, we had the, you had, I mean, almost everybody registered for the service. And so when those, the way the system works with our registration, when, um, when you register, we get an email. So all week long, like I was just checking my email because <laughs> I was so excited to see people on a Sunday morning. So I'm really glad that you guys are here. It's great to see some of you that I haven't seen for a long time. And I can't wait till um, things get back to normal and we can be meeting regularly uh, and, and all together. I um, I, if you've been at Oak City for a minute, uh, you picked up that I have. I don't think it's unhealthy, but maybe an unreasonable affection for the land and the people of the state of Wisconsin, and that has come up a few times in the last um, few months in our staff meeting because uh, we, at the end of our staff, scale of one to ten. So a few years ago, Nate um, gave me this thing about how. People rate their average meetings at work. They ask people to rate, like, how they would rate an average meeting. And on a scale of 1 to 10, they gave it a 4. And so they had this thing about how you should run your staff meetings to make it a level 10 meeting. And at the end of that, you should rate it every time, which is good practice. And we give ourselves between a 7 and a 9, which might be generous. But, you know, that's good. And, um, but, but Kelly and Tiffany don't really like uh, that part of the staff meeting. So sometimes we'll rate other stuff just to just to keep it light. So, like, we rated Garner once. Garner didn't do great. Um, you know, it's not bad. A lot of you live in Garner. I could live in Garner. I like Garner. Uh, but it's not like a destination, you know? So, fair enough. We rated Texas. Um, John, our new pastor, is from Texas. He loves Texas. Uh, I was in Texas a few years ago, and my lasting impression of Texas was that if you don't put one of those sun shield things in your window, which I think is kind of a pain, it's so hot in Texas that it will literally, the sun will crack your dashboard if you don't put one of those things up there. And I just thought no one should live here uh, if that's the case. Like, I don't know what all these people are doing here. And so that was Texas. Wisconsin, when we rated it, got a 6 on a, on a scale of 10, which isn't so bad, except I rated it a 13 on a scale of 10, and they let me, and it still only averaged out to a 6, which means they all rated it like a 4. And I was like, guys, we need to take a field trip. Because you just don't understand Wisconsin, you know, how great it is. Because you go there, then there's like cheese everywhere in Wisconsin. Like all the cheese you could want. I got this thing on my, if you've been in my office, I have this little pamphlet of Wisconsin cheeses. It's got like a graph of cheese. And so all the different cheeses. If you want to look at this later, just let me know. We can talk about them. Um, there's a lot of sausage in Wisconsin. It was a bunch of German and Polish people that settled Wisconsin. And so they know how to do that. That's great. Right? No? Sausage. It's the beer capital of the world, so there's that. And there's cows everywhere, and everybody loves cows. And so why wouldn't everybody want to be in? (laughs) Right. This is why I say it's unreasonable. Maybe not unhealthy, but unreasonable. And what I've realized over time is that Wisconsin represents, to me, a little bit of an illusion of a place that never really was. Uh, Wisconsin, for me, is like a distillation where, where all the bad things have kind of faded away and the good things are the things that remain, but they're not even specific. They're more generalized, and it never was that. Like, I have great memories of growing up in Wisconsin. Great things happened to me in Wisconsin, 
some really bad things happened to me in Wisconsin. <laughs> you know, there are things, there are reasons that I should never want to go back to certain places in Wisconsin. And I probably have this affection for Wisconsin because I haven't spent a lot of time there in 25 years. I mean, it's literally freezing cold eight months out of the year. Like from October until May, it can snow in Wisconsin. And there's people, I mean, if you've seen Wisconsin, there's people down here in Milwaukee and over in Madison and then like in Green Bay, but there's no people up here. And there's probably a reason for that. You know, it's like the cows have taken over in the rest of the state and nobody wants to live there. And so there's just something, there's something in that. And I'm convinced that all of us have our Wisconsin. Like we all have a place that seems like it would be an escape to us and the place where everything is the way that things are supposed to be. And that we have this profound intuitive sense of longing for a place where things are the way that things are supposed to be and we have a sense that things, that things here are not the way things are supposed to be, and that that sense of things shapes the way that we live our lives in a whole lot of ways. So it's like there's a, there's a here where things are the way that things are, and they're not supposed to be this way, but they are this way. And then there's some magical place over here where things are the way that things are supposed to be, and we're continuously trying to figure out how do we get from here to over there? You know, and so some of the stuff we talk about all the time, you know, it just comes up in sermons and in scriptures, the ways that we try and get from here. And so we think if we had more stuff that I would magically get from here to there, or if I had better relationships or if people thought more of me or if I had a better job that I would get from here to there. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about how we're constantly trying to upgrade everything in our life. Like I'm constantly thinking like my car's fine. Uh, but the transmission's a little hitchy, and so I just, is there, how could I get, like, a, just a little bit better car? And we're always thinking about a little bit better. Our house, I really like our house. House is, like, 25 years old. There's a lot of stuff that needs to be updated in our house. We've updated some of it. We could update more of it, but we could just move and get a house that's already been updated, and then we wouldn't have to deal with that stuff, you know? Or our neighborhood, I like our neighborhood. I like our neighbors. I like the part of town we live in, but... I don't know, like people drive too fast on our road and our neighbors don't take care of their lawns as well as I want them to. But so maybe we just upgrade that. And we're constantly thinking, what if I upgraded my job? You know, what if I upgraded my financial advisor? What if I upgraded my kid's sports coach? Uh, people are constantly thinking, what if I upgraded my spouse? What if I upgraded my church? Like we're constantly thinking, how do I get from here to over here? Uh, I think it's why we're always looking at our phone. Like right now, you're thinking, my phone could do a better job of getting me from here to there than this guy could. So why don't I just try and find that magical thing that's in my phone to get me from here to there? And we're always looking at it. I think this is like how addiction works, you know, is that you get addicted to something, whether it be substances or food or sex. And so the addiction magically takes you over here. And it's wonderful over here for a little while. But then you come down off of that and then you're back over here. But you're actually like further over here. And it's worse here than you remembered it was in the first place. So then you get in this cycle of addiction. I think you get in a depressive state where you think, I'm never going to get over there. And there's nothing that can get me there. So I'm just going to like sit down here and stay here because I'm never going to get there. And so we end up in that spot. You can get in a spot where you think the reason I'm not there is you. Like it's your fault and you just get bitter at the people around you because it's their fault that you're not going from here to there. Or you can get in a place where you think here is all it is. There's no there. We're never getting past here. Just suck it up because this is it. 
you know, and all of those things are like dominant things for us. And I think it's because of this dynamic this year in 2020 with COVID, with, you know, the trial up in Minneapolis and, and all of the racial tension that surfaced with the election. I think collectively we're going to agree we're not getting there together because we can't agree where there is or how to get there. And, and it's a different place for all of us. And so it leaves us in this place. Now, I think Easter has a whole lot to to say about this, to say about, to talk, talk about here, to talk about there, to talk about the gap and to talk about how to bridge it and how to get to a different place. And so I'm gonna talk out of a story um, that actually happens um, probably a couple weeks, they don't know exactly how long before Easter. And so it's a story in John chapter 11, and this is, some of these scriptures are on your, your song sheet on the back of it, where, um, where oh, um, Mary and Martha, who are sisters that have a brother named Lazarus, uh, and Lazarus gets really sick, and they are in a town called Bethany, which is really close to Jerusalem, and Jesus is, um, is not there. He's someplace else. And so they call for Jesus and say, hey, can you come do something because our brother is sick? And there's some tension in that because um, this is a few weeks before um, Jesus is crucified and rises from the dead because the, Jew the religious leaders are really ticked at Jesus. And so the closer he gets to Jerusalem, it's like the Death Star, and he's, they know he's going to get sucked in. And so should he go or should he stay or whatever? And so this is where that story is. So they tell him that he's sick, and Jesus says, it says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And this, I love this story for so many reasons. That's one of them, because if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to get used to the fact that sometimes he, because he loves you, he is not going to do anything about your problem, at least not the way that you think he should or in the timing that you think he should. And that can be really frustrating, but it's right there in black and white in the Bible. And it's just the way that it works. Um, and then a few days later, he says to his disciples, okay, let's go to, to Judea. Let's go to, to Jerusalem and his disciples are like, we can't go there because they're going to kill you. And Jesus says to him, but uh, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and so I need to go wake up Lazarus. And his disciples say, and, and Jesus means he's died, and I got to do something about it, but his disciples are taking him at his word, and they're like, well, if he's fallen asleep, then like he'll wake up, you know, like someone else can wake him up, Jesus. There are... Um, a lot of people that think that this story, skeptics think that this story, because it's in the Gospel of John, but it's not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John was written later than the other Gospels, they think that this was made up because it would be included in those other Gospels, uh, you know, and not just in the latest Gospel, which I can see why people think that. But if you're going to make the story up, there's no way you make it up like this. <laughs> like, you just don't make yourself look that dim in a story and have this conversation with Jesus and put it in the Bible for everyone to see. And so then um, they get to a place where they're going to go, and Thomas says, uh, well, if Jesus is going to go, let us go also that we might die with him, which is like the ultimate Eeyore moment in the story. It's just a great story. And so he gets to Bethany, and he finds Martha, and it says, when Jesus came, he found out that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and she met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother uh, would not have died. And this is another reason I love this story. It's just so relational and personal. And so Martha sees Jesus, her brother's dead, 
and says, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And on the one hand, there's a lot of faith in that statement. Like, Jesus, I've seen you do things like this before. I know you could have healed him, and I believe in you. You know, so it expresses faith. On the other hand, it's a little passive-aggressive of like, Jesus, I don't know what you had to do that was so important, but if you had just come here, like my brother would still be alive. And so, I, I don't know, fair enough, we can do that sometimes. Um, and, and, and then it's really honest. Like, I said this last week about uh, miracles, that, that part of the challenge of following Jesus is once you start knowing, believing that Jesus can do these crazy things, you start wondering why he doesn't do the crazy things more often. <laughs> you know, why doesn't he use his power the way I would use his power if I had his power? And that's exactly what she's doing here. If you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And so, like, why didn't you do the thing that made so, so much sense for us to do? And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again, which that could mean a handful of things. And she takes it probably the most logical way. Um, she is a good, faithful Jewish woman, and the Jewish people believed that there was going to be a resurrection, but it was going to be a re resurrection of all the faithful on the last day, not one being resurrected then and one then and one then. No, it's all at the end. And she says, yeah, I believe that. He is going to be resurrected. And Jesus um, says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And that's an astounding statement. Uh, I've read this hundreds of times. I've preached it a handful of times. Um, I've spent the last few weeks reading and listening to other people preach about it and just studying it. And I still don't know what that means. <laughs> it is astounding. He doesn't say, hey, I can resurrect your brother and I will resurrect your brother. Like, it's not I can resurrect. He doesn't say, listen, Martha, I'm not supposed to tell anybody this, so just keep it on the down low, but in a few weeks here, I'm going to be resurrected. He doesn't say that. He says, I am the resurrection, and I am the life. Uh, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The last few weeks in the series uh, that we've been going through, this Connecting the Dots series, we've been at Jesus. We've talked about the teachings of Jesus and how they're great teachings, but they point to something more. He's more than a teacher. He is a miracle worker, but the miracles point to him being something more than just a miracle worker. And here John like steps all in on that. And if you're John and you wrote this later than the other Gospels and you're making stuff up, man, you have bitten off way more than you can chew by saying I am, he didn't tone it down, he amps it up. I am the resurrection and the life. And I think this speaks quite a bit into this situation of here's where we are and there's some place where we're supposed to be and we're constantly trying to figure out what this means and it shapes so much of how we live our lives. I'm gonna say four things about that. The first one is this, that in saying that, he affirms there really is a place where things are the way that things are supposed to be. And we are made to live in that hope and to pursue that hope and to try and figure out what that is. And I think um, in our day, like in a, in a people with a naturalistic worldview and don't have faith in a supernatural power, like try and figure out some evolutionary way of explaining that it's the people that are most optimistic that are deluded into thinking there's that place that are gonna pursue it and makes things better, even though naturalistically, I don't think we have any evidence for that. And it kind of goes against the lizard brain thing that the people that are in touch with their, whatever that part of your brain is and defend themselves, like there's all sorts of confusion. And Jesus says, no, that place exists. And it's not in Wisconsin and it's not in Texas. 
and it's not in Garner, but it's a legit desire. And it's not an acquisition, and it's not a reputation, it's not some accomplishment, it's not even a human relationship, because the best things in life aren't that. They're not places and acquisitions and any of that. Um, and like, we don't get like how this, like we don't get how this gap works because so much of the time we think it is, if I can just get more, then I can get over there. But then you think about some of the times when things felt most right in your life, it's when you gave up stuff. <laughs> like not when you got stuff, but you gave something up and you thought, oh, this is what I'm made for. We have no idea how this works. Like on our own, we are fools to try and figure out what this looks like. But Jesus is saying it's there and it's real and we got to figure it out. Now, I was listening to a pastor um, a few weeks ago who he is, I think he's about 70. He's got pancreatic cancer. And so he is like facing it, you know? And he said, he said he's been dealing with it for about six months. And he said, it was fascinating. He said, I would not go back to my pre-cancer self if you gave me the choice. Because in this six months, he said he and his wife have realized how much, and he is a pastor of renowned, <laughs> how much I'm trying to turn earth into heaven. And I'm trying to make things on earth do things that they weren't meant to do. And so I'm totally dissatisfied with them. But now that I'm realizing like that's just like it's visceral, that it's not possible. And heaven is a different place than like the way things are supposed to be. I'm, we're not trying to get out of these things of earth something that they weren't meant to do and so we're much more satisfied with them and i'm like this is a guy that's understanding the reality of that place is there um, but we don't know how to get here and it's changing uh the way that he's leading his life um here's the second thing the best idea we have of what that place is like the best idea we have of what it's like we have our conceptions of it is the person of jesus uh, which is like, that's hard. That's a hard statement. We think in terms of how to get from here to there, but he's saying that he is there. And it's not like he got there before we got there and he could tell us what it's like. No, he is it. Like he is the place. He is life. And that's how we know what it's like. And that's worked on me all week long or for a few weeks because I'm like, I think they're just things about Jesus I'm not getting, you know? Uh, in Hebrews, it says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of the nature of God and upholds the universe by the word of his power. And that is standing right in front of Martha saying, I am the resurrection and the life. In Colossians, Paul writes, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. They were created through him and for him. He's before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in, that in everything he might be preeminent. And it says, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God is pleased to dwell. And, um, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or on, in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And it's standing before Martha saying, I am the resurrection and the life. I don't know how to help you understand this, Martha, but I am life embodied. I, uh, I mentioned, I've had conversations with a handful of you about this, and I mentioned it last week and put the interview in, in the weekly thing that I put out the week and a half ago now, but it was an interview with a guy named Jordan Peterson, who is a 
psychology professor at Harvard and the University of Toronto, and he's written books and he speaks all over and he's got millions of followers and all this stuff. But the reason he's fascinating to me is he is such an unlikely convert. <laughs> and, I'm, and it seems like he's a convert now. He's probably in his 60s. Um, he has all the things that on earth get you from here to there. Like, he has had a fantastic career. He is a family guy and loves his family. He's written books. He's got all the money. He's traveled everywhere you'd want to go. He's got all those things. And yet here he is towards the end of his life, like, contemplating Jesus and being blown away by it. And one of the things that he said in that interview is how, as a psychologist, he understands that there is a good reason and why people have done this psych psychologically and philosophically for hundreds of years. They've come up with an idealized person, an ideal man, and said, well, this is what we're supposed to be like, and so let's try and get from here to there to idealize it, like make sense. And he said there's mythological precedent, precedent for a God that has risen from the dead, but he said in Christ... Like, now you've got, like, that idealized thing, but then you've got this guy that was in history, and it's where they seem to come together. He says, and so what you have in the figure of Christ is an actual person who lived plus a myth. In some sense, Christ is the union of those two things. And he says it's such a great line. He says, this is seeming oddly plausible to me now. I still don't know what to make of it, in part because it is too terrifying a reality to fully believe. This is a brilliant guy, an outsider looking in on it and saying, if you really believe that, like it's, it's terrifying. He's having the Martha moment of Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life more than you ever conceived. And it's, that's the moment we're supposed to have this morning. It's not just that Jesus rose from the dead, but he is the resurrection. And for that to blow us away anew. He says, I don't even know what would happen to you if you fully believed it, if you believed in the story of Christ or you believed in that history. Because when you believe that, when you buy both those stories, you believe that the narrative and the objective, they can actually touch. He said, I'm even inclined from time to time to think, well, I've got the choice between believing two impossible things. And this is what faith feels like sometimes. I can either believe that God took on flesh and was crucified and died and rose three days later, or I can believe that human beings invented this unbelievably preposterous story that stretched into every atom of culture. And it isn't obvious to me that the second hypothesis is any easier to believe than the first, because the more you investigate the manifestations of the story of Christ, the more insanely complicated and far reaching it becomes and it's so fantastic to listen because he's like I can't do anything but believe it because it's true and he's realizing how it's going to wreck his life and it's this moment um, that Martha is having with Jesus I found this from uh, an old British preacher Charles Spurgeon about this story he said when our Lord said I am the resurrection and the life he indicated to Martha that resurrection and life were not gifts which he must seek nor even boons which Jesus must create, but that Jesus himself was the resurrection and the life. These things were whatever he was. He was the author and the giver, the maintainer of life, and that life was himself. He would have her to know that he himself was precisely what she wanted for her brother Lazarus. It wasn't like that she wanted life for him. She wanted Jesus because Jesus is life. Uh, so Jesus shows us what it's like. He shows us not only that, but he shows us, he corrects our false assumptions about how we get there because we're not, we don't get what the gap is. We have all these false assumptions about the gap that drive how we're trying to close the gap. Um, and the gap isn't, isn't, it's not solved by more. If I just had more of this or more of that, and it's not solved by better, either better of this or better of that, or me being better. And if I'm better, then God will take me to that place. It's not more and it's not better. And so the story moves forward 
um, with Martha. And so he goes to Martha, and then he goes to Mary, um, and then he raises Lazarus from the dead. And after he raises Lazarus from the dead, it says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them, and that's what you'd expect. Like, you see him raise a guy from the dead. You're like, okay, Jesus, whatever you say, like, that must be true. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So some of them were tattletales, went to the Pharisees, said, he raised that guy from the dead. You've got to kill him. Like, you've got to do everything you've been thinking. And that was their response to it. And this is amazing. But I said the same thing last week in talking about the miracles of Jesus, that we can get into this trap of thinking, if I just had more evidence, then I'd have more faith. If I just had more evidence in Jesus, then I'd believe. But there's plenty of people in the Bible and that we know that have all the evidence that they need, but it doesn't solve the problem because evidence isn't the problem. (laughs) Sin is the problem. And the problem with the gap isn't more or better. The divide isn't there between who we are and who we're supposed to be. Sin is the thing uh, that, that makes that gap up. And it's not just getting who Jesus is because there's plenty of people who get who Jesus is but don't want Jesus to be that because we want to be the resurrection and the life and we want to have control over that gap and and we don't want to have to surrender to him. Caiaphas, uh, who is the high priest and the guy that's in charge uh, when when they come and say this is what Jesus did, he says to them, you know nothing at all nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. And, and it says he didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Now, Caiaphas is saying, if Jesus keeps going like this, the Romans are going to find out about it. And the Romans are just going to come down on us and crush us because, and that's the accusation that Jesus called himself king. And that's not good if you're Caesar to have a Jewish king that you didn't authorize, you know, and that's what Caiaphas is saying. But then John writes, he didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. And so he is prophesying the death of Jesus on the cross for the sins of the world. That, that closing that gap and dying for our sins is what Jesus, um, that, that's what he had to do. Uh, that by doing that, he justified those of us who were being perfected. Um, and, and we get that idea of sacrifice, and this is probably a different sermon for a different day, but it just oozes out of us, the idea that someone has to sacrifice on our behalf and what that means to us. Last night, we were watching the basketball game, and I don't know if anybody watched this. You see the national anthem before? I think it was the second basketball game. They just had a bunch of students, and they were harmonizing. It was one of the best, best national anthems I've seen in a long time. But in the middle of it, they flip to this group of soldiers that are in Kuwait, and it just always gets me. The national anthem gets me. And soldiers get me because those guys and women, they're on, they got it on the line for us. Like they're willing to sacrifice for us. And we get it. A couple weeks ago, we were, um, it was Saturday night, my whole family was at home and the, one of those Batman movies was on, but it was the one with Christian Bale that is supposed to be like the best Batman movie. And I'd never seen it before. And so I was like, hey, let's watch this. And I made it maybe two thirds of the way through. I just don't make it through movies. And then I started doing the dishes. But I, but I heard at the end of it, if you know that movie, the, there's a guy named Harvey Dent Harvey Dent, he is the police commissioner or something like that. And, but at the end, he becomes Two-Face and he, he does some bad things. And at the very end of the movie, the, uh, I don't know who the other guy is, but he says, um, we're going to take these bad things that Harvey Dent did and we're going we're gonna to accuse, we're going to say that Batman did those things. And, and then we're going to redeem Harvey Dent's reputation by putting those things on Batman and then we're going to chase Batman down like he did him because we'll never catch him and he's strong enough and he can take it. 
And I was like, I turned the faucet off, like, hey, anybody see Jesus in that anywhere? Anybody, you know? It oozes out of us <laughs> because it's true, because that's what Jesus did for us on the cross. The one who was fully human and fully God, who didn't need to pay for his own sins because there weren't any, was the one that could pay for our sins. And so, like, he shows us everything we need to know about that gap. And then faith is the only real bridge to get from here to there. Uh, he says to Martha, do you believe this? And she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's come into the world. And, um, and Spurgeon, again, has a line about this. He says, faith is the only channel by which we can draw from Jesus our life. He says in that passage, he that believes in me. He doesn't say he that loves me, though love is a bright grace and very sweet to God. He doesn't say he that serves me, though everyone that believes in Christ will try to serve him. He doesn't even say he that imitates me, though everyone that believes in Christ must and will imitate him. He says he that believes in me. Why does he say that? He said faith is a grace which arrogates nothing to itself. It has not operation apart from Jesus to whom it unites. Faith is an empty-handed receiver and then a communicator, it's nothing apart from that upon which it relies. And therefore, it's, a suitable, it's suitable to be a conductor for grace. And so we recognize who Jesus is and the things that he's done, and we come to him and say, you are the life. You are the resurrection. You are all that we need, and that's, he's going to get us to that place. Through faith in him and through trust and through obedience and through all those things, he is the one that's going to change our lives. And the last thing I want to say about this is that your heavenly father wants you to be in that place. In the reading plan that we're going through as a church, as we go through this series, a couple weeks ago, we were on the story of the prodigal son. And so that's the story where there's a, you know, a guy that has two um, grown adult sons and an older brother and a younger brother. The younger brother says, hey, I want, can you give me my inheritance now while you're still alive? Because I want to go have some fun. And he's saying, I want to get from here to there. Give me my stuff. And I'm going to go and figure it out. You know what I mean? And then, he, and then it turns out that at the end of the story, the older brother is also trying to get there. But he's doing it by being a better son. Like being a better person. Like there's kind of a religious and irreligious in that. Um, and he's the better and the younger son's the more. And the younger son gets done with the more and realizes it doesn't do all the stuff. And so he has to go back to the father. And it says, the father, when he comes, says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. My son was dead and is alive again. And I thought, man, the, the resurrection that God wants this Easter is us. Like Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. More people this year will celebrate it than probably any year in history, you know. But like we need a resurrection. Our hearts need to be raised. In Ephesians uh, Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive. It's like we're stuck here and to get there, he has to make us alive. And through faith, he does that. In Corinthians, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And if he's the first fruits, that means there's second and third and fourth fruits that are coming by him. For as a man came by, by a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection from the dead. And Romans, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And his spirit is the one that's going to take us in his time, in his way, to the place that we were made to be by the process that the Holy Spirit sanctifies us and makes us into who we want to be. And so if you are the younger brother and you have never 
said that what Martha said, I do believe, I do believe, then let this be the morning that you come to Jesus and say, I do believe, and you accept what he's done for you. But for those of us that have been in church for a while, someone said in that reading plan in the comments, um, she said, a couple people said, it's really hard to go from being the younger brother and not turn into the older brother and to become like religious, you know, and then to lose your fascination with just who Christ is. And so let this Easter morning take us back to this place where Martha is and just be blown away by the one that has told us he is the resurrection and he is our life. Father, thank you that 2,000 years later we are, we are joining with, with billions of people across the world celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And we're doing that because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead has been at work every day from then until now and will be at work and wants to work in us and wants to work through us, God. And we are grateful to you for that. I pray for those of us that have never accepted what Christ has done for us, that today would be the day that we bow the knee before you. And by faith, we say to you, you are the life and you are the resurrection and you are what I need. And by your sacrifice, um, I can be made new and raised from the dead. And for those of us that have been walking with you for a while, but get a little bit jaded, would be, be renewed in that, God, and get a new sense and a new sense of amazement of who you are. We love you, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.